Well, good morning, church. Here we are again, gathering around the subject, keeping your joy, the heartfelt theology of an isolated prisoner. This is part six, and the specific topic this morning, showing Christ to be great, the meaning of life and death. The text is Philippians 1, 19 to 26. Hope you have a Bible, get one and study along together. Philippians 1, starting at 19, Paul writes to this church in Philippi from prison, and he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 21. Here's the famous verse. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. And most of us just think, Paul, are you, are you crazy? My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, so it would be better for them. His ministry to them would continue. 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming again to you. It's a fascinating text. We all, we all no doubt have our moments when our spiritual life at least feels like it shines more brightly than other times. We have our seasons where we don't blow it when we allow Christ to have his way and be all in all in our hearts. But what marks Paul's passion for Christ as you go right through this letter is, is the consistency with which all of his life just seems to be painted with this dominating Christ-centeredness. He's, he's wondrously obsessive about magnifying the greatness of Christ. Whether it's by his life or by his death, he doesn't seem to care as long as Christ gets glorified. He would never be intimidated by people less dedicated. He would never cave in to embarrassment about the cause of Christ or the convictions of Christ. If Christ was right, the imposing culture was wrong all the time. He would never allow the spiritual smallness or the spiritual numbness of the crowd to silence his devotion to Jesus Christ. It's this wonderful picture of Paul. There, there, there was only one access of which everything else in his life just sort of orbited. Remember, in the verses immediately preceding our text, the ones we looked at last Sunday morning, Paul responded to the wicked motives of some of his fellow preachers in Rome 
He said they were preaching the gospel while they were trying to do him personal harm. I mean, I get that specifically in that 17th verse of chapter 1, where he says, others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. So that's what they were out to do. They were out to just hurt Paul. And yet, Paul doesn't even bother to keep tabs on all the way these preachers were out to make life miserable for him personally. He, his Christ-centered heart, it just has no time for those kind of small and petty calculations. Oh, that we were all more like that. His life just revolved around the glory of Christ, and he just rejoiced in the fact that Christ was being proclaimed. It could be by crooks, but as long as the gospel was being properly proclaimed, good with Paul. And as long as Christ was front and center, Paul simply had very little interest in how these people were treating him personally. A lot of churchgoers await the discovery that dedication to Christ, where that abounds, joy is rich and full, triumphs over the casual religious tone of the crowd. So, so when Paul says, verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ, he, he means there is no me, there is no Paul left to be hurt and to carry grudges. He, he means that Christ lived where that part of Paul used to rule. That's what he means. This is the incredible joy and, and unsinkable freedom that rules the heart where everything gets just traced back to Christ-centeredness and Christ's glory alone. So in our text today, we're going to see the same principle, the same single access to life, only now it's going to be under different circumstances. Here, in our text, the issue isn't the mean competitive treatment he was receiving from others. It wasn't that. The issue now is Paul's impending court appearance, his trial, and the life or death decision that seems to hang in the balance. So it's not personal mistreatment from others. It's a, it's a legal system that has calculated against Christ and is Paul awaits their verdict. He hints that he might be spared under God's providence. He does that in verse 25 but he's not sure. And none of those personal details is the real point to Paul anyway. All that matters, verse 20, is that Christ is honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's what matters. It's a beautiful picture. I see uh, three examples of a Christ-exalting witness in this text. That's what I want to look at with you this morning. Hope you have your Bible. Point number one, to magnify Christ is to lose the dominance of all personal concerns in the pursuit of his glory. I get that in Philippians 1, 19 and 20. Paul says, I know I know through your prayers, so they were praying for him, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. And when he says by his body, he makes it clear whether it's his living body or his dead body. Now, the striking feature of those words, it's the way Paul simply assumes that uh, the result of their prayers, verse 19, and the work of the Holy Spirit, verse 19, he doesn't automatically assume that the result of their prayers will be his deliverance from prison. But the result of their prayers and the work of the Spirit will be the magnifying and honoring of Christ. That's the goal. Whether, whether it's by his life, he says, or by his death. And I'm just kind of humbled at the way the actual process of Paul's circumstances, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that crucial to him at all. I wish I were more like that. All he sees is the ultimate goal of the events of his life, that 20th verse, that Christ will be honored in my body. That's what I want you praying about. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He lists those two things in the 19th verse. That's what it's all about, that Christ be honored, whether it's by my life or, or by my death. Those are powerful words. Paul, it's not just a, it's not just a religious kind of a phrase for me to live as Christ. Like, he's not just quoting someone else's words. He's, he's reflecting carefully on how his circumstances, life or death, that's all he's got. He's reflecting on how his circumstances, either way, affect the, the demonstration of the glory and great, greatness of Christ. Now, later on in this chapter, he'll reflect on how his circumstances might be fruitful if he lives might be fruitful for the Christians at Philippi. That's in 24 and 25. But he seems to take no account at all of how his circumstances affect him personally. Now, Paul's not, Paul's not just some kind of masochist. It's, it's that he had found such a treasuring of joy and purpose in Christ that that he found the concerns of self to be somewhat dull and small and boring and insignificant in comparison. That's an amazing thing. Life, life had been so enlarged through Christ that, that he can't find any motivation for his life at all if you take Christ out of the picture. Would that we were all like that. He, he can't find anything to be excited about if Christ is taken out of the picture. What's the purpose in living at all? There would be nothing important of Paul left if treasuring Christ wasn't at the center of everything. So, so when Paul says, 21, for me to live is Christ, he, he, means, he means the nerve endings that used to feel personal hurt, personal anger, personal loss, personal comfort, 
the things that used to give credit to his life, that used to bring pride and pleasure, those nerve endings that used to feel all those things are now more sensitized to Christ than to himself. And that's where the joy is. For Paul, any kind of revenge, pride, anger, bitterness, all those things, they only reveal the parts of life that aren't yet crucified with Christ. So, so let me restate this first point. To magnify Christ is to lose the dominance. I'm not saying we don't feel things, but it's to lose the dominance of all personal concerns in the pursuit of his glory. And, and verse 19 makes it very clear that this is not a weak position in Paul's mind. Quite the opposite. It's, it's because Paul was so submitted in all of his life to Christ that he's confident he will never be, look at the words he says in 19, never be ashamed. I will never come out on the losing end. Amazing words. The Christ-obsessed life, it can't be undone, it can't be ashamed, it can't be mocked, it can't ultimately lose in life or in death. It can never come up empty. It will be left standing when all the pursuits that are motivated by blind ambition and pride and material gain and revenge or greed, when all of those things have crumbled at the feet of our Lord, Paul's hope is still settled. Yes, and I will rejoice, 18b. So there bubbles up this, this glorious certainty in those words. I know, I'm not mistaken about this eternal hope in him. Here's another way Christ gets magnified. Point number two. To magnify Christ is to face with equal confidence either life or death because both are inevitable and both come under the lordship of Christ. I get that in Philippians 1, 21 to 26. This is where Paul says, for me to live, okay, so there's the living option. If, he, if, if the trial goes well, he's not executed, and he lives. Well, if he lives, to live is Christ. Now, it might not go that way. He might be executed, beheaded. If not, well, to die is gain. So to live, that's Christ. To die, that's gain. And then he's going to explain what he means. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. There's these two choices. My desire, personally, is to depart and to be with Christ. It's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And he says more. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. So he seems to express kind of a certainty there for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So 
when Christ is the genuine center of existence, uh, death and life can honestly be placed beside each other as equals in this sense, in the sense that neither one can cancel out the power of devotion to the Lord. So ultimately, Paul's going to let the Lord decide whether he lives or whether he dies. He says, but if it were up to him, it wouldn't be an easy choice. He has strong motives that pull him in both directions at once. But here's the important point. I hope I can make you see this. He has, he has strong motives in two directions, but they aren't really different motives. They're really just, they're the same motive expressed in two different directions. Here's what I mean. A, his first inclination is to depart and, and be with Christ. You see that really clearly in that 23rd verse. I'm hard-pressed between the two. He means those two choices, to live or die. Hard decision for me. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. I think, I think it's easy to miss the, the full freight that's being carried in these very familiar words. It was certainly Paul's desire to be with Jesus. I mean, that's clear in the text and it's beyond doubt. But I don't think that's the only motive behind Paul's desire to depart, that means be executed, and to be with Christ. He hints that there's, it's, it's a, there's another, another motive at work in departing and going to be with Christ. He, he hints at it in the 20th verse. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, and here's the phrase, Christ will be honored in my body. And then he makes it clear that that cuts both ways, whether by life or by death. So he has a desire, 23, it's his desire to depart and be with Christ. Why is it his desire to depart and be with Christ? Well, 20 says, even in departing and being with Christ, there's a way, in, a special way in which Christ will be honored in my death. That Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Those aren't light words. They aren't breezy words. Those are words that are begging readers to think about them. I mean, we can all see right off the bat how Christ would be honored in Paul's physical body if his life were spared. That just makes sense. Paul would continue to devote his life to serving Jesus just as he had before. Okay, so that's easy to see how Christ would be honored in his life. Paul would continue his missionary work. But how would Christ be honored in a dead body? Paul's decapitated body. How does that bring honor to Christ? Here's the answer. He tells us it would bring honor. Christ would be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Christ, Paul's dead body, would bring honor by providing the greatest example, above all, of the desirability of Christ. So it would prove 
to all who saw Paul's execution and his decapitated body, it would prove to everyone that Christ was better than life. That's what it would show. It would show Paul's courageous confidence that nothing, not even death itself, could separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So the result that Paul would never see if executed, but the result would be others would be emboldened to live for Christ by seeing Paul die for Christ. They'd be emboldened to live for Christ by seeing the way Paul died for Christ. That's the frequently overlooked reason Paul is actually anxious to depart and be with Christ. It's not just so he can rest in heaven and not do anything. He sees it as an opportunity to show the world what Christ means to him. He'll be glorified in my dead body. So that was his first choice. I said his desire to glorify Christ was really one desire expressed in two directions. The first we talked about was dying and why it's gain. And it's not just gain because Paul wanted to be with Jesus. That's part of it. It's gain because there would be this incredible witness to the greatness of Christ. The other option, the same desire that he remain alive and minister to the saints. I see that in Philippians 1, 22, and then 24 to 26. He says, if I am to live, that's what he's talking about now, live in the flesh. That means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Jump to 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. There's Paul's concern. He wants to do it with his death, and he wants to help them do it if he stays alive because of my coming again to you. And so here again, you see this I guess you could call it like a seamless kind of a focus to Paul's obsession in magnifying Christ. If he wants to live on physically, it isn't for himself. And if you read his words carefully, this is surprising, it isn't even just for the Philippian believers who would benefit from his ministry. That's kind of a goal, he says, but it's only secondary. The bottom line is in that 26th verse. He wants to stay alive and minister so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he wants to come, he wants to minister to them, but the real aim is he wants their lives to glorify Christ just as his life glorifies Christ. It's all the same goal. So Paul's bottom line just never changes. Everything is always and only about Christ, for me to live is Christ. If he lives, it's all about Christ. If he dies, it's all about Christ. If the saints are strengthened, it's still all about Christ. This, by the way, Paul has seen something in Christ that simply, it won't let him focus his life anywhere else. He has seen something in Christ 
that won't let him focus his life anywhere else. And I would submit to you, this is exactly what Jesus meant when he said these words in John 4, 13 and 14. Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. He said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. We know what that's like. Just because you have a drink on a hot day doesn't mean you're not going to want another drink later on. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, this is poor English, but it is the actual order of, of the Greek words, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The mark, the mark of being related to Christ is they're never thirsty for anything else again. This is Paul's discovery. For me to live is Christ. If I die, it's still about Christ. If I come to you, it's about Christ. Everything is about glorifying Christ. Why? There's nothing else that satisfies me. I'm not thirsty for anything else in the words of Jesus. A Christ-obsessed life is an eternally satisfied life. It doesn't thirst for anything else. Christ is the one place to drink deep and long. All of the self-help books, all of them, are going to leave you dry and empty without Christ. Only he can give you a hope and a future and a present that will never leave you empty, hungry, joyless, or thirsty again. There's one more closing point. We're almost done. Point number three. Here's another way Christ is magnified. Christ is magnified now as he alone fills the moments of your day with kingdom purpose. Here's where I get that. I get it in 24 to 26. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, continue with you all for your progress and for your joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ. There it is because of my coming to you again. As much as we try to feel spiritual, I don't suppose any of us is absolutely crazy about the idea of dying. None of us rushes toward death. And that's okay. But if we don't rush to our own deaths, I mean, if we want to continue on living, there's another question. There's another question that every Christian watching this has to ask himself or herself. If I'm not anxious to die right now, if I'm hoping that God gives me more years, here's the question. Why do you want another 20 years? To what end? This is the Christ-centered issue. To what end is more physical life? Is it to see your children grow up and get married? Do you long to have time with your grandkids? Are you looking forward to retiring from the rat race, moving somewhere warm in the winter where you don't need a snowblower? And I know those are pretty common dreams, and they seem innocent enough, but 
But really Christ-centered people at least have to address a potential problem here. And here it is. Atheists long for all those things. In other words, I am not, I am not marked in any distinct way if the world sees exactly the same longings, thirsts, growing in my heart as are in theirs. I mean, how do my goals and aspirations for the next 20 years, how do they glorify Christ? It's a big question. How do they point to the ultimate joy, the ultimate supremacy of Jesus as creator and Lord of all? How, how will the next 10, 15 years of my life, how do the goals of that life give testimony to eternity and the gospel? We know Paul was happy to live. He was no killjoy martyr. But his longing for life, should he stay on alive physically in the body, his longing for life was inseparable from his longing for Christ. Fruitful labor, verse 22. If Christ gives him more time, it's for fruitful labor. How about if he gives you more time? If he gives me more time. If, if Christ gives you or me another 15 years, how will his kingdom be vastly improved by my existence? That's the big issue. If he prospers your business for another 15 years, you could give a couple of million bucks to missions. If Christ gives you another 15 years and you lead one person to the Lord every six months, that would be 30 new disciples. If Christ gives you another 15 years and you teach 20 kids each Sunday, that'll be 300 people you train to love Christ passionately. Here's the issue, the, the, the life lesson of this text. Paul has no other way to measure the passing of his time on earth except increasing the desire for Christ in everybody. When you live like that, when you live like that every day, you not only find great joy in life that, that just can't be removed, never be ashamed, Paul says, but you also will look at the fast approaching time of physical death as it just races toward us all. And you'll face it with the very same joy, knowing that to die is gain. It's a huge text. Let's pray together. How quickly the, roll, the, the words roll off our tongues. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We, we know them like we know John 3.16. But they express what life is all about. The meaning of our days. Jesus, be that big in the scope of all of our affections and ambitions. Let that heart of Paul just be translated into each one of us. Where do we get truth like this except in your word? Thank you for it. Let the seed of the word germinate in our lives. All week long, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.